Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out why we sometimes come up with our best ideas, our eureka moments, when doing routine things. We learn more about the science behind so-called shower thoughts. We continue our series called Code Blue, looking into the crisis in our healthcare system with a conversation with the new president of the Canadian Medical Association, the first Indigenous leader of that prominent organization. We hear from Calgary Mayor Jody Gondak about why she's calling for more to be done to protect those in public life, particularly women, who are being targeted for harassment, intimidation and abuse. That following an incident where the Deputy Prime Minister was verbally attacked in Alberta last week. But first, the last president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, passed away today at the age of 91, a leader whose legacy was as complex as the union he once led, launching an extraordinary set of reforms. He both ended the Cold War, but also presided over the collapse of the Soviet Union, leaving him revered in the West, but often reviled at home. Well, we begin tonight in Moscow. I'm sure, as you may have heard, uh, confirmation today that the former Soviet president, the last of eight Soviet presidents, Mikhail Gorbachev, passed away today at the age of 91. Former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney says Gorbachev was a great man who will be sorely missed on the world stage. Uh, during his seven years in power, Gorbachev made dramatic reforms, as you may remember, that paved the way for many things, including the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, pretty much the end of the Cold War, and of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. He died today at a Moscow hospital. Mulroney says he always held Gorbachev in high esteem. President Gorbachev will go down in history as an iconic leader, uh, and one who accomplished uh, a great deal for humanity. Former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney there, a man whose legacy, Gorbachev, was as complex as the union he once led, again, through an extraordinary set of reforms in a very short period of time uh, that ended both the Cold War, but again, presided over the collapse of the Soviet Empire. In the 90s, as Russia and the former Soviet republics and Eastern Europe emerged from behind the Iron Curtain, Gorby, as he was affectionately known in the West, remained a symbol of what might be a new era of peace, perhaps. Uh, here he is with Ronald Reagan earlier. The maxim is, dovei no provei, trust but verify. <laughs> you repeat that at every meeting. Very different from the relationship between the U.S. and Russia today, of course. Vladimir Putin would call the end of the Soviet Empire the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. And some of what we've seen from Russia since, including the war in Ukraine, can be in many ways linked back to those comments from the Russian president and the actions of Gorbachev more than a decade before that. Well, with more now on the life and legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, I'm joined by David Marples. He's a distinguished university professor of Russian and East European history at the University of Alberta. Thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, in many ways, he really was one of the most influential uh, leaders of the last 50 years, at least, uh, but not seen the same way in different parts of, uh, well, within his own country, uh, as opposed to the West, for instance. No, uh, in fact, in his own country, he was regarded as a failure, the man who destroyed everything, um, destroyed the empire, left uh, his country impoverished, and in many ways pandered to the Western desires, gave up weapons when the, uh, you know, the giving up weapons was not reciprocal on the American side. Um, and in, and really, um, his legacy there was very, very poor. Uh, I would say until more recently. I mean, I think since 
for the past 10 years or so, people have started to rethink Gorbachev a little bit in uh, in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, but for, for some years, when people in the 90s were suffering from unemployment, um, impoverishment, and really having a very difficult time uh, making a living, then Gorbachev was blamed for that, along along with Boris Yeltsin, his successor. So it's a mixed legacy, and certainly he's not regarded the same way as he is in the West, where he's, he's still revered, I think, even today, and will be for some time. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that today, of course, from the comments, including from Brian Mulroney, who who I actually interviewed. I spoke to him about Mikhail Gorbachev when I interviewed him at Margaret Thatcher's funeral, because that was all part of that era. And he always spoke very highly of, of Mikhail Gorbachev over the years. So clearly he's doing the same thing today. Um, it's interesting, though, in, in many ways, when, when you look at the reforms that he made, um, Glasnost and Perestroika, the opening, uh, at the time, though, I mean, he was faced with a very serious problem in the Soviet Union. I mean, he recognized an issue and tried as best he could uh, to solve it. But I, I imagine it just all kind of spiraled on him. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he came to power in 1985 in March. And in the previous three years, three Soviet leaders died in office. I mean, first of all, Brezhnev, who was already uh, be 76 years old, and he was followed by Andropov, who was sick at the time, lasted about a year and four or five months. And then Chernenko, who was suffering from emphysema and lasted about a year. I mean, it was a gradual um, removal of the old guard, if you like. And Gorbachev, who had been appointed to the Politburo in 1980, uh, was the almost unanimous choice to be the leader, the general secretary, and realized that this couldn't go on. I mean, he, he was 54 years old, which was actually the youngest in the entire Politburo. The average age was over 70, although that doesn't sound so bad given today's uh, politicians. But, Not at um, all. Yeah. <laughs> but even so, um, there was, a, there was a, a general atmosphere of decrepitude and stagnation and and Gorbachev, Gorbachev saw this. I mean, he was an intelligent man. He was from the southern part of Russia as well. He knew the regions well. He knew different parts of the country quite well. And he came in as the acolyte, if you like, of Yuri Andropov, who I just mentioned, who was the former KGB chief, who used to come to Stavropol, Gorbachev's region, to relax during the, to the summers, and sort of took Gorbachev under his wing. And Andropov, ruthless as he was, was also a reformer. And Gorbachev kind of followed in the same direction. But you could see that there was no immediate desire to destroy anything. What he wanted was a society that moved forward, that was less corrupt, and that was less ritualistic, and that where you could really measure achievements properly and try to reform the economy, but at the same time try and keep the system in place. Uh, he was a Leninist. He was a follower of Lenin who believed that Stalin and others had wandered off the track set by Lenin and that the real answer was to kind of go back to what Lenin said, and that then things would be more or less okay. But he was stymied. He was a very unlucky uh, person as well, because within a year of him taking office, um, excuse me, 13 months afterwards, the Chernobyl disaster occurred, which was a world catastrophe. And Gorbachev was kind of caught in the middle of it, just as his sort of glasnost campaign was beginning. And this was the kind of thing with no leader can really anticipate. And really, I think this was the beginning of the problems for Gorbachev. Um, I also felt that Gorbachev, excuse me if I'm talking too much. No, not at all. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, indeed. um, One of his biggest faults, in my view, was that although he was 
Ukrainian on his mother's side and his and his wife was entirely Ukrainian in ancestry, um, he didn't understand the nationality problem. And that when he introduced Glasnost in society, a frankness of reporting, and people could talk honestly about the problems, it was likely to lead to some moves for self-assertion in the national republics, of which there were 15, and of which the Baltic states, the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, were the most likely to lead uh, because they were very different from the rest of the Soviet Union. And they began gradually, I think, to to move away from, from Moscow and began to set their own agendas. And eventually their own flags and national symbols emerged. Gorbachev didn't understand that. I mean, he had a meeting on nationalities, um, a conference, 19th Party conference in 1988, which showed he was absolutely clueless about these national differences and, and national desires. So I would put some fault there. And, and also I would say that it was very hard to reform that country as long as the party hierarchy remained in place. And it took Gorbachev some time to realize this. He kind of put himself in the middle between the party hardliners and the more radical reformers who wanted to push perestroika and glasnost to the limits. So he was caught in the middle and he went one way and then he went the other way. Um, I remember in, in uh, early 1990, uh, things started to change and Gorbachev began to backtrack and start to remove some of his reformers from the Politburo. And later on in 1991, in August, when there was the failed putsch, uh, only then was Gorbachev forced to see that the Communist Party's future was over. And that very reluctantly, and at the behest of Boris Yeltsin, who forced him to declare the Communist Party illegal after this failed putsch, as it tried to remove Gorbachev from power. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. Well, maybe nothing symbolized the way that the West saw uh, Mikhail Gorbachev quite as poignantly as that Pizza Hut commercial filmed at a Pizza Hut in Red Square in the 90s. Of course, there is no Pizza Hut in Russia anymore, uh, not since not since this year. Um, David Marples is my guest this half hour. He's a distinguished university professor of Russian East European history at the University of Alberta. Um, a lot of what we're seeing today, one looks back at that commercial, by the way, with a certain amount of, it feels like it happened in a, in a, on a different planet at a different time, and it certainly was. Yeah, it was. And um, really, the anti- Western sentiment in Russia, uh, you can trace it from, I would say, the Yeltsin, so late Yeltsin period. There was a lot of disillusionment with the Yeltsin presidency. Uh, Gorbachev himself felt that Yeltsin had sort of taken power in a coup d'etat while he was planning to, you know, revise the union agreement on a democratic fashion. And Russia went in a, in a capitalist direction, but it sort of tried to, to become capitalist overnight. And this bankrupted uh, a lot of people and uh, certainly caused a lot of hardship. And I don't know if Gorbachev planned for this. I mean, I don't really think Gorbachev knew what was coming in the future. And when Putin came to power in 2000, uh, the economy began to turn around, not particularly because of anything that Putin did, but because oil and gas prices suddenly shot up worldwide. And Russia benefited from this and Putin took the credit. But he also at that time took on a very anti-Western direction and said, you know, that we've done too much pandering to the West. It's time to forge our own way. 
And this misery that happened in the 1990s is entirely a result of Western involvement, Western interference in our lives. So let's go back, let's become Russians again, and let's form our own patterns. And that, of course, doesn't sound too great, but it's not as bad as happened by 2008 and 2012, when it was quite clear that Putin was began to thinking of, of resetting borders and re-establishing some former patterns of Russian influence in Eastern Europe and other places, as he's doing today. Um, I don't think it's... Uh, I mean, Gorbachev always felt that Ukraine should not leave the Soviet Union. I mean, that was a great tragedy for him. Uh, but he was not a man of violence. He was a man of peace. And, and that, I think, is his greatest asset and his greatest memory is the fact that Gorbachev declined to use force in order to get his way and uh, promote Russia. Yeah, I was thinking back today about what his legacy would be. And when one thinks back to uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, those heady days of the late 80s and early 90s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the uh, the reunification of Germany and so forth, the fact that it was all done with so little bloodshed because Gorbachev didn't use uh, the fist that had been used in in Czechoslovakia and Hungary in the past and so forth may stand to be his greatest, his greatest legacy that that, that, that happened. I mean, we are seeing some spasms of it today, uh, but still there was a lot of very profound change in Eastern Europe that happened with very little bloodshed. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think Romania was the only country where you really saw quite a lot of bloodshed with the change of communist regime. Uh, all the others changed power relatively peacefully and, of course, I'm not talking about Yugoslavia here because that was not strictly mm-hmm. part of part of the bloc. Um, but yeah, it happened peacefully, and um, and I think that has much to do with Gorbachev and and his um, decision to waive the Berlin Doctrine and eventually to to dissolve the Warsaw Pact, um, the legacy from the Second World War, of course. What we see today, though, I guess there is there is obviously a, a tieback, as you pointed out. There is a tieback to the to the fall of the Soviet uh, Empire, the chaos of the '90s that ensued, and then this new sort of Nova Russia, uh, new Russia vision that we see today. Yeah, there is a there is a fallback. I mean, Putin's always said that the fall of the Soviet Union was a great tragedy. He's never denied that. But at the same time, Putin is not a sort of um, you wouldn't call him a Leninist, for example. I mean, he's more of an admirer of the sort of hardline Stalinist style policies and the Soviet victory in the Second World War. You would not find him saying anything particularly pleasant about about uh, Brezhnev either, but certainly he admires Stalin and he feels that Russia's got a natural place in the world and it's been sort of removed from the table thanks to Western powers uh, joining together in NATO and pushing those borders eastward and pushing Russia somewhat out of the equation, taking it out of the decision-making. Uh, It's far-fetched in many ways because Russia's always been there. I mean, NATO's always allowed Russia a voice as well. And in fact, for many years, something like 14 years in power, Putin never mentioned or hardly ever mentioned NATO expansion. It's only really recently that it's come up as a big problem and used as as a sort of excuse for invading Ukraine. I see it more, incidentally, as a reversion back to the Russian Empire and the days of the Russian Empire where Russia held vast territories inside Ukraine, uh, in the Baltic states and other areas. I mean, this is where Putin is thinking. And his historical revisionism is on a scale I've never seen from any leader before. And really, as a historian, it appalls me that someone would interpret history in this fashion and sort of deny self-determination to over 40 million people in one of the states. 
And this could only be the first step. Had it been successful, I don't think it would have stopped in Ukraine. But obviously, for the most part, it's been it's been something of a failure. And I think it's a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. David Marples, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, Important to remember Mikhail Gorbachev. I think we all have uh, fond memories in many ways of him as being one of the first Russian leaders that we got to know. And I think that in of itself was uh, was one of his, perhaps one of his lasting legacies, at least for those of us in the West who uh, got to know a lot more about a Soviet leader than we'd ever known before. David Marples, thank you so much. Yeah, you're always welcome. So why are we so likely to have eureka moments? A time when you sort of get a nagging problem solved, an idea comes together, a hurdle is overcome. Why does it so often happen not when you're sitting alone in a room staring at a blank screen? And I know that feeling very well. Um, But happens when you're doing something completely different, a routine, something you do all the time without thinking, walking the dog, taking a shower. And suddenly the mind opens up and a pleasant and perhaps unexpected thing happens. You come up with a good idea or you solve a problem. Well, research apparently shows that this is no fluke. Uh, Letting your mind wander or engaging in spontaneous cognition or stream of consciousness thinking, stream of consciousness thinking, experts believe helps retrieve unusual memories and generate new ideas. Now, I don't know a whole lot about this, but Kalina Kristoff does. She's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of British Columbia, and she joins us now. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. This is such an interesting um, an interesting field because I think it, it's one of those things that confirms something that people must already suspect, which is the mind operates in curious ways. So how is it that you come up with such good ideas when you're not thinking about them or at least not focused on them? You are absolutely correct. Um, most people have the experience uh, and therefore they suspect that there's something special about these moments when we're, uh, so to speak, idle or at least we believe we're idle, but in some sense, the mind keeps working even when we're not uh, doing something uh, really intensive, uh, mentally speaking, or when we're not trying to get to some place, mentally speaking. So um, the suspicion that people have and what their experience is often is that um, when they're not doing something that's uh, deliberate, they would sometimes come up with uh, novel, interesting ideas that they couldn't come up with as they were trying to before. Yeah, I I mean, I was reading um, an article that you were interviewed for as well, and they mentioned something called default mode network, which which sounds a bit like a a bit, uh, a bit robotic, but uh, default mode network sounded like an interesting way, kind of the opposite, I suppose, of being very focused and very analytical about a problem that you're faced with. Yes, for sure. So the default mode network is something that um, our lab at UBC has done a lot of work around. And uh, you are right that it's somewhat of a misnomer. It's a default, the default mode network of the brain is the network that becomes activated when we are um, not doing any external task, but when we're thinking about something that's more introspective, uh, such as, for example, memories that we might recall from the past, or when we are daydreaming and mind-wandering, in which case um, we're also thinking about something that's maybe happening in our head, but not in front of us in our environment. And so even though the name for it is default, uh, the, the processes that it engages in are anything but, because they're very active and they're very much internally oriented. And it's in those moments that sometimes we have new ideas that end up being much more creative 
and novel than uh, what we were able to achieve while trying to work on a task. I know this may be complicated, but what exactly is going on in the brain when we go into default mode and why is it why does it lend itself uh, to a certain amount of creative thinking or more creative thinking perhaps than staring at a screen? Well, that's a really good question. And the default mode network itself is comprised of several subcomponents. And um, one of the most interesting parts, so there's usually two or three subcomponents that we could see in the default network. One of the ones that I'm most fascinated about and I find most interesting is centered around what we know are the limbic lobes of the brain or the limbic system of the brain. And that is uh, where the hippocampus lies and some of those really ancient structures of our brain um, that are buried internally inside of our brain. But they give rise to a mode of functioning in the brain sometimes that's very internally generated and spontaneous. And so in that mode, uh, which kicks the default network into action, we experience an internally driven reverie or a spontaneous stream of consciousness that leads us to new places mentally. And that's where the origination of new ideas um, is also, also happens. Oh, the brain is such a fascinating, fascinating place, Kalina. The, um, can, you, can you turn this on and off? I mean, I, I, obviously, in my position, oftentimes I have to clear my head. So I'll go and I'll, I'll stop working for a while and go walk around or just do something routine because it helps me think about how to do an interview. There's only so much research you can do until you have to let it all sink in, right? Um, is there a way that, in other words, does the brain know sometimes that you're trying to hit default mode network and refuses to do it for you, I guess was the question. <laughs> Well, that is also a very good question. In general, the brain and uh, our, the mind work, uh, they work in cycles. So we go into these cycles of up and down, sleep and awake, attention and uh, distraction. And that's also the case about the default mode network and another network of the brain that we know as the executive network. So whenever you're trying to um, solve a task deliberately or achieve uh, some kind of a some mental feet. Uh, deliberately, you're using your executive network. Let's say you're gathering research for a topic. Um, that's what you're using. But because the brain seeks cycles and it needs to um, change its activities, after a while, that mode of functioning, the executive network mode, becomes exhausted. And uh, more, or layer, more or less naturally, it leads you to engage in something different. And those are the moments often when the default mode network kicks in and takes over. And so those are moments at which point you might feel that you are spinning your wheels uh, while trying to do something in a goal-oriented manner. You're getting tired. You're not getting anywhere. You're getting in a rut. And those are the moments that might be good to take a break and go and do something different than what you've been doing, both mentally but also physically, because that helps establish a shift in both thinking and our physical activity that then um, helps switch those modes. So to go back to your question, it's hard for us to deliberately switch between modes, but we can create the conditions when we um, sense that we need that shift to help us switch those modes. What sort of activities lend themselves to switching modes? Because I gather one of the things that a lot of people do is they start staring at their phones. And I don't find the phone as a particularly, you know, you start staring at, at social media. or instance. Th That doesn't really kick in default mode, I don't find at least. 
Absolutely not. And if anything, uh, staring at screens uh, takes us away from the default mode network functioning and that internal um, oriented stream of consciousness because it's an external stimulus. And what's more, it's not just an external stimulus, it's a constantly changing external stimulus. So the, the phone, the iPhone, any device acts as a portal to the external world and that is constantly potentially changing. And so it maintains our attention externally oriented throughout the time, which actually prevents us from switching into that default mode functioning and uh, keeps our um, engagement of default network down. So what we really need is something that we're often tempted to avoid, which is a lack of external engagement. And those moments often may feel boring to people or even scary or even may bring up anxiety because uh, so much of our existence is now in front of screens. So what do we do if there's no screen in front of us? Um, so um, the switch can be pretty hard if we haven't done it for a while. And when people have interesting thoughts, in the shower, that's often a sign that they, and get surprised by them, that's often a sign that they don't take the time to have spontaneous thoughts away from screens. And, you know, when we get in the shower, the, maybe the five minutes of the day when we're not staring at the screen, suddenly we have a thought. Um, so this is just, you know, in some sense a sad commentary on our lives these days. That, it is. Uh, Taking time away from a screen may sometimes require us to do a task like taking a shower. Yeah, Colleen, I never thought of, of taking a shower as the only time you free yourself from the from the from the bounds of your phone. But you're absolutely right. It is one of the few times that most of us in any given day and walking too. Like often, if you're walking, you probably aren't looking. So those are the times when uh, most people probably have these these have more random thoughts. Are there any sorts of activities that that I mean, you, you mentioned the shower, but is it really just a, something that is very second nature to you, very routine, like a walk or walking the dog or taking a shower or whatever. Are those the sorts of things that really are the best without any devices in hand, obviously? Exactly. So routine activities can be very conducive to this mode of functioning because um, they often give us some physical activity, which can be calming for the mind. Uh, but at the same time, they provide these opportunities in a routine fashion of they, they often create rituals within which we feel comfortable that that is something we do during the day. And they save us from the guilt of uh, not being productive, for example, because that's part of our routine and part of our day. So uh, whatever we do as routine activities, whether it's walking the dog or gardening um, or taking um, going for a hike, all of these can be perfect moments for um, default mode engagement, um, seeking new ideas and so forth, provided that we... Um, protect ourselves from the draws of external engagement. So screens, of course, are one of, that, uh, one of those sources of draw. But the other source is something that I do a lot, is listening to podcasts or right. auditory engagement. So um, uh, something like um, something that draws our attention could be either in sounds or in, in, uh, in our vision. All these things draw us away. Um, so what's important is that when we get into these moments, um, we give ourselves the mental space to move freely within our own minds um, without being exposed to distractions from the external environment. The last question I had for you, Kalina, because I always found is that sometimes those, those thoughts can be quite fleeting. 
I mean, sometimes you, you think, oh, wow, I just had a great idea. What was it? And it doesn't come back. And I was wondering what might cause that. Well, that is also an excellent question. And we don't completely understand that. Um, but there is a sense that observing our own thoughts uh, is a pretty crucial moment that sometimes disrupts the arisings of spontaneous thoughts. Um, because in some sense, spontaneous thoughts and novel ideas come from these processes in the brain that are happening at, um, at outside of the conscious, outside of conscious awareness. Right. And if we turn our attention very closely onto what's coming out and how it arises, that can stifle the spontaneous process of arising, just like observation can stifle any spontaneous process. Um, so in some sense, one of the tricks, uh, if we want to be able to connect better to these spontaneous thoughts, is to not be too forcefully attentive to their arisings and to allow them the freedom to take shape while at the same time preventing external distractions from taking our awareness away from, uh, from what might arise from our unconscious Go with the mind flow, I guess would be the Kalita Christoph, thank you so much. It's been, uh, you've explained everything I was so curious about during the day while I was reading up on this. So thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. We continue our in-depth look into the crisis in the Canadian healthcare system tonight that we call Code Blue. Last week, we took you inside the problems facing many emergency rooms in this country particularly in rural and rural and remote areas. We spoke with Dr. Alan Drummond uh, in Perth, Ontario. Here's a bit of what he had to say. A very notable doctor from uh, St. Mike's was recently on a panel discussion with the Ontario Medical Association for the public. And he said, uh, literally, he was 99% confident that things would get worse this, this winter. So city doctors and rural doctors in the emergency department in this province are saying things are bad and we kind of think they're going to get worse. You can find our full interview with Dr. Alan Drummond on the A Little More Conversation podcast that's available on the show's homepage on the Global News website and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. He had a lot of interesting things to say. Of course, his emergency room alone was closed for a three-week stretch uh, in the last month or so, and uh, he has a lot to say. He's also uh, with the Emergency Doctors uh, Association of Canada, and he had a lot to say about what uh, could be in store for the fall. They don't think things are going to get better. They think things are going to get worse, as he pointed out. Well, tonight we look at the domino effect that a lack of primary care providers is having on the entire healthcare system in this country, including on our emergency rooms. StatsCan reports in 2019 that approximately 4.6 million of us, and I'll include myself in that, did not have regular access to a primary care provider. That number is likely growing. Uh, we're also taking the opportunity tonight to get to know the new president of the Canadian Medical Association. Originally from Saskatchewan, Dr. Alika Lafontaine is an anesthesiologist based in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And earlier this month, he became the first Indigenous leader of the prominent national advocacy group. And Dr. Lafontaine joins us now from Grand Prairie. Thank you and welcome. Congratulations. Thanks for having me. This is a, a challenging time to take on this role. Um, what made you decide that this was the right time and, and what do you think you're going to be able to bring uh, to this important position? I, I didn't actually have long-term plans to run for the head of the Canadian Medical Association, to be honest. I, I had a, a close friend who reached out during the nomination period and, and they asked me to you know, look around and see whether or not I thought that I could have some sort of positive impact. There, there's a lot of frustration in the healthcare system now, both on the patient side and the provider side. And 
I, I saw all that pain and, and frustration and thought to myself, you know, if, if there's something I can do to, to help out, then maybe put my hat in the ring and, and run for the election. And I was lucky enough to have Alberta physicians choose me for this year. It's a culmination of quite a remarkable story, isn't it? From the time you just sort of, uh, you know, when you, from high school on, just the the amount of uh, hard work and success that you've had over the years. You know, just like any Canadian, I, I've had a lot of ups and downs. In preschool, I was labeled with a learning disability. Obviously, I, I worked through that with the support of my parents and you know, really close, tight-knit uh, group of mentors. You know, even getting into medical school and moving on to specialty fellowship, it, it's it been an uphill battle. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that I always remember being in this position is, you know, it gives me the opportunity to bring with me not only my expertise as a clinician and also my past history as in leadership, but also my understanding of what it's like to be on the outside. And I think there's a lot of people out there, uh, both patients and providers, who, who feel like they're on the outside right now, and we need to bring them into the conversation if we want to fix our problems. Yeah, that you raise a really important point because I think you're absolutely right. Being able to have that view is probably at this point in time, uh, given some of the challenges that the healthcare system is facing, it's really important to know both sides of this story, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think it's the side that we don't talk about that probably is going to have the most impact. You know, we we tend to get really fixated during these times of health system stress on, you know, specific types of, of conversations, you know, the ever louder drum for efficiency, you know, the the real push for alternative methods of, of care outside of the public system. And I, I think that there's much broader conversations that we can all be a part of. And at the end of it, people want to be able to show up to their family physician or emergency or to see their specialist and, you know, have a good experience and walk away feeling that they received the care that they needed. And, you know, if that's the goal, then that that should probably be more central to what we're talking about. Yeah, I guess we do fall into a lot of those old traps, private versus public, um, you know, more efficiency within the system, you know, new and bold ideas, right? But what we really need, and you're absolutely right, what people want is to be able to rely on the healthcare system, right? That's what it, that's what it boils down to. Um, what are some of the things you would like to see done? I know this is a very big issue, but where do you think some of the real pain points are and where do we need to start fixing them fast? There's a lot of things that, that people are focused on right now. So you, you have a bunch of these crises converging together. And so it's tough to be comprehensive in a short period of time. But I do think one of the major areas that we have to focus on is primary care, specifically supporting family physicians in the community to provide the type of care that, that patients hope for. And that honestly, you got into medicine to provide in the first place. You know, there, there's things that we sacrifice as physicians in training in order to get the other side of it, which is that impact in people's lives. And I think more and more family physicians are feeling like they don't have that space to provide good care. And as a result, they're pulling back from work. They're, they're maybe choosing other work because they can't provide it in the environment that we have right now. And there, there are definitely immediate solutions that we can provide to create that environment. You know, one of the big things that we talk about frequently is things like team-based care, you know, but I, I think team-based care has to be focused on how can we all work together in order to provide that best patient experience versus, you know, just switching out who can replace the family doc at cheaper cost or who else can provide care other than the family doctor? You know, these are conversations that I, I think we need to be open to have, but they're, they're not central to what actually can make impact right now. And, you know, we, we all need to lift where we stand right now and find ways to do better immediately. That way we can address the care shortage that we have right now. 
it feels like, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Victoria and there's been a huge problem with family doctors out here. I mean, oftentimes the family doctor is the gateway into the medic, into the system, right? And when you start to lose that gateway, um, you start to lose an important relationship for individuals as well. And then, it, and we're seeing the cascading effect of that. Is that too simplistic or is that, is that about right? I, I think that's a good entry point to the conversation. You know, we, we've known for decades that Canadians had a difficulty you know, seeing their family physician, you know, about 15% of Canadians can see uh, or get linked to a family physician year over year for, for the past long time. You know, in, in May, we had a, a few provinces note the, the large backlog. You know, in Ontario, there was uh, the the news that there were more than 1 million surgeries that were in the backlog and more than 22 million health services, you know, things like getting x-rays or lab tests or other things. That's That's an overwhelming amount of care that a family physician has to get through. You know, and then people are getting more complex because of aging, but also the the care delays and the care deficit has led to more acute patients. So when you actually see someone, they tend to be sicker or have uh, more advanced problems. Now, if you look at the way that family physicians provide care, you know, the the idea that a family physician can get through a full panel of patients, which is anywhere from, you know, 1,900 to 2,500 patients, depending on the study you look at, you actually don't have enough hours in the day. You know, there was a recent University of Chicago study that showed that you, know, you need 26.7 hours to see an average number of patients, and about three hours of that day is spent in documentation. You know, we do really need to rethink how we can provide care in better ways. Uh, team-based care is definitely one of those ways, making sure that we integrate everyone within the healthcare team, but then also making it more convenient. And, you know, these are things that things like virtual care can provide as long as we have all the right players around the table. So it's not just a question. I mean, often the subject of money comes up. Certainly it's come up when the, with the provinces of the federal government, as it always does. Uh, but it strikes me this isn't really only about throwing more money at this problem, that it has to be spent wisely because we're, we're, we're entering a system where it's not just about the money. It's about multiple issues. You know, I, I think the problems that we have today really show how our extreme focus on efficiency, which really translates into how can we get the most care for the lowest cost, has really led us to this point. You know, even when we talk about things like team-based care, you know, we we talk about the idealized version of team-based care, which is everyone kind of lifting where they stand, but governments tend to focus on, you know, switching a family dog out for a nurse practitioner because there'll be lower cost or, you know, opening up primary care to other team members who traditionally haven't been trained or uh, provided that type of care in the past. And I, I think it's the the wrong frame to look at this. You know, in the middle of an emergency or a crisis as an anesthesiologist, the very last thing I want to do is switch up the roles that people have within the emergency. You know, what's important is for us to get together, get really aligned on what we're trying to achieve, make sure we have clear communication, make sure that we're checking with each other, that we're doing things in, you know, a proper, you know, step-by-step way. These are the ways that you make your way out through a crisis. And I I think doubling down on that sort of communication, trust-based care, where we're really focused on that relationship with the patients who come to see us in in the places that we work, that's what's going to lead us out of this crisis. Uh, Dr. LaFontaine, there was a new study that came out late last week just showing the kind of impact this has had, uh, this crisis in the past few years has had on healthcare professionals in general. Uh, It must be cause for concern when you're seeing so much, um, how to... I wouldn't call it desperation, but certainly people not feeling good about the work it is that they have to go do every single day, or at least the conditions with which with which they do it. I, I agree that people should be alarmed at, at some of the things that we've seen year over year in this survey. You know, we we've had the chance with this National Physician Health Survey to provide a, kind of a, a pan national view of 
you know, where physicians are at as far as their feelings towards work and, you know, their, their feelings of burnout. Our, our last survey was, was back in 2017. And, you know, it was concerning back then. We, we found that a lot of our metrics have doubled, you know, often entering into points where, where we're quite concerned, you know, 53% of physicians and medical learners reported experiencing high levels of burnout, nearly double the amount that was reported in 2017. There's, there's a difference in a lot of the metrics between, you know, family physicians and those who provide primary care and, you know, the rest of the system, often those metrics are worse. You know, we, we see that what we hear in the news is reflected in the data. You know, people are not feeling good about the working environments they're working in. They're feeling overwhelmed. And as a result, a lot of them are considering pulling back because it, it's tough to be in a situation where day after day you feel overwhelmed and, you know, you, you feel like you're you're reaching your breaking point. I know you've done a lot of work uh, with groups such as the um, the Indigenous Health Alliance and so on. This was a, a, a something I know that's close to your heart and something that was a problem. There was there was a lot of improvements to be made there. Do you feel like that experience can be now applied more broadly to the whole healthcare system? I mean, you went in and found gaps and found problems. Worked as it worked together to try and solve some of these issues. Do you feel like that could be an approach that would work uh, nationwide? You know, there's a lot for us to learn from Indigenous health, particularly in the way that Indigenous communities have dealt with crisis, right? I I believe that a lot of the crises that we're feeling right now in mainstream medicine are not new to rural and remote communities, especially Indigenous communities. You know, doctor shortages, rolling closures of services, delayed care, um, worsening communication, um, not feeling like you're you're getting the the best kind of care that that you should receive as, you know, a person living in Canada. And so taking those learnings and applying them to the, the problems that we have right now, I, I think it's really a, a difference in magnification. So at the root of our healthcare issues are things like not feeling like you can trust your your provider, making sure that you have clear communication. And, you know, after you you have that medical encounter, you actually feel motivated to make changes in the way that you you address your health, uh, ensuring that you talk to the right person at the right time to receive the right sort of care. You know, these sorts of things are magnified within Indigenous health. And it's important for us just to remember, you know, we we talk lots about how complex the system is, but at the end of the day, the system is really that provider to patient interaction. You know, and a lot of times that's actually not that complex. And if we get the right people around the table talking about these issues and us being open and honest about the, the challenges that we have, I think what we showed in the alliance is we actually could move the needle when it came to and narrowing health inequities. And I believe we can do the same thing in the mainstream healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, you built a lot of bridges and, and it was a lot of collaborative work, which we don't always see. And across, you know, obviously across provinces throughout the country. And it feels like that might be something that uh, that's sort of what the system needs, um, you know, broadly right now is that sort of collaboration and to identify issues such as that and to be able to sit down with people from across the country and say, okay, wh- what do we need to tackle first? Well, one of the things that I really appreciated from the Alliance experience was realizing just how deeply people care about these issues. You know, it's it's easier for us in the midst of these crises just to, to point and, and assign blame to different groups. And, you know, there, there's enough challenges for us to all to share the burden and enough uh, previous mistakes that have been made for us to share the burden. But uh, you, you have very, very good people within the system who are working very, very hard to make a difference. And sometimes what they need is a fresh perspective from someone who sees things in a slightly different way. Sometimes they need to hear directly from the person who's experiencing 
the uh, the the issue at, at the center of care, the the patient and their families, in order to understand how to make these changes, and sometimes getting everyone in the room really focused on you know a single goal that you know they're trying to remove barriers for. Uh, I, I think is what is needed. You, there's a lot of things that you hear right now from politicians that actually give me a whole lot of hope. You know, uh, premiers getting together in Atlantic Canada with, uh, you know, Premier Ford from Ontario and, you know, hearing things like the status quo is not an option. We have to have all options on the table. You know, the, these are the words of people who acknowledge that the crisis is severe enough that we're actually going to enter into rethinking what we're actually doing. And, you know, if we have the right kinds of options on the table, I, I think we can make a big difference in, in what people are experiencing right now. Yeah, sometimes people can be cynical when they hear politicians talking about well, we need bold new ideas, and you think, well, wait a second, you know, what? Happened? Why not? Where were the bold ideas five, ten years ago? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why did? Why does that give you confidence? And what are some of those bold ideas? Do you think you talked about obviously about mm-hmm. team based uh, treatment and so on, which are important? But but what gives you hope that 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 there's hope on the horizon? I in in the pandemic, I, I think Canadians could see different waves of acknowledgement of the problem. You know, at the very beginning, you know, a minimization that, you know, the problem wasn't as severe as we thought, you know, now entering into a a state where you're realizing that this is now spiraling out of control, things then spiraling out of control, and then getting to a point where you have some sort of recovery and and space to kind of breathe as you try and create a a different way of approaching the next wave that might might occur. You know, the the same sort of thing happens in, in any sort of crisis. And we we are quickly entering into the space where this is spiraling out of control. And what that provides is, you know, an opportunity for us to really be committed to doing something different because we don't really have any choice other than to do something different. You know, it's so widespread for people to lack access to care. It's so widespread for people to not be having the the types of experiences that they want to have. You know, there's such a care deficit. You know, workers are born out. All of these crises are converging at a point where we we truly might, for the first time in a very long time, have a real conversation about what we're trying to achieve in the healthcare system. And I, I hope we, we keep it broad. I hope we don't get fixated on, you know, the, these, these uh, routine conversations we all seem to get into. And, you know, if we elevate our level of conversation and if people get involved in the conversation the same way that they did when we were going through the pandemic uh, waves previously, I, I think there's a lot of hope for us to actually have the discussion take us somewhere different. And you'll be part of that conversation, Dr. Lafontaine. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, last night we spoke with Conservative Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt, former Conservative Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt, about the incident uh, involving uh, Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister in Grand Prairie, last Friday. She was verbally attacked by a man who wandered into, uh, who had followed her into Grand Prairie City Hall. Uh, It was a tirade of abuse aimed at both her and her staff. Well, today we found out uh, that the RCMP is in fact investigating that incident. In a statement today, the force says investigators are looking into the incident, adding that the force takes threats against public officials seriously. Uh, The Prime Minister today was asked about the rise in threats directed towards politicians in general. We know we've been hearing from politicians from all parties talking about uh, just how much worse it has gotten, what they've faced in recent times. He says Canadians have been through a lot in the past few years and people in positions of power should respond to that pressure in a positive way. It's time for people to uh, look to assuage fears and angers, uh, to respond with a positive vision of the future. The Prime Minister there, of course, some accuse him of not doing that himself. But the RCMP says physical or verbal threats to politicians, whether in person or online, 
can have significant effects and may lead to criminal charges. Now, of course, as I mentioned, the incident has led to a lot of reaction. We heard from former Conservative uh, Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt. You can find that interview on our podcast, A Little More Conversation. Um, But they're also sharing condemnation and sharing their personal experiences. Last night, Lisa Raitt spoke of being sort of uh, approached and attacked verbally at a hockey game when she was with her children. So they've been sharing those personal experiences. Uh, Many, of course, have no problem putting themselves in the Deputy Prime Minister's shoes. One of those people is the mayor of Calgary, Jyoti Gondek. Uh, She became the city's first female mayor when she was elected last October. And in a social media thread, something she posted to Twitter earlier this week, she's calling for more than words of condemnation now. She wants more to be done to protect those who are being targeted uh, in these situations. And joining me now is Calgary Mayor Jyoti Gondek. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Um, just your reaction, I guess, to the, what we heard today, which is that the RCMP is, in fact, investigating what happened on Friday in Grand Prairie. Does that bring you any solace at all about uh, how this how this whole incident is being handled? Well, I mean, I'm glad they're investigating. I hope they're also investigating um, all of the information that has been given to them by the journalists that are being targeted right now um, in an organized campaign. I hope all of these events are being investigated. And that was the whole purpose of me posting what I did. We need to start taking these things seriously. Yeah. I mean, I read through what you posted on social media. I invite listeners to go have a look as well. It's, it's, it's long. It's, I think, 16 or 17 different tweets. So it's really a full statement. But I realized it took you a while to sort of collect your thoughts and, and put what you wanted to say down. Why was that? Well, you know, it's not like something just happened to me the other day. And so I decided to post about it. This is an ongoing pattern of behavior that um, women in politics experience. And now we know that women in journalism are experiencing as well. And it's just ratcheting up and it's getting worse. So the issue is that when things like this happen, you compartmentalize them, you put them in a box, if you will, and you tuck them away so you can get on with the rest of your job. Because you can't sit and think about these things and actually process the emotion because it would be too hard to do your job. So you tuck them away. And I've been doing that for years. And so to see this happen, um, my thoughts over the couple of days before I posted were around, should I say something and do I have a responsibility to use my platform to amplify, to amplify voices that are going unheard And it was a decision I made to go public with this because I thought people need to hear that this is happening everywhere. What was your reaction when you saw the video? I spoke to Lisa Raitt yesterday, and and I I guess it's all too easy to put yourself in Christia Freeland and her staff's shoes that day. Yeah, I mean, someone showed it to me and I watched a couple of seconds and said, turn it off. I can't watch this right now. And I put it away and I turned it on later. I've only seen the short version. I haven't seen the extended version that I hear is out there as well. Um, Just to watch the deputy prime minister turn away and get into the elevator and plaster a smile on her face and her staff basically surround her and try to block her and, and have, you know, agreeable looks on their faces. Yeah. It's very easy to put yourself in that position because I've been in that position. You you're, you're taught to, not interact. You're taught to, you know, smile to bring the temperature down in the situation. It was all too familiar. 
when you first went into public life, because I know obviously you'd had a long career and a long career doing other important stuff. But when you first went into public life, how soon into that journey did you encounter this? And and what was your reaction? Because you might not have been in the in, in previous positions, you might not have had to learn how to put on that face. Well, as a woman in any career, you need to learn to put on that face because you experience these things. So I wasn't new to it. I would have to say the incident in 2017 when I was a candidate, not yet elected, of having a man looming over me, um, telling me he would ensure I never won and that he knew where I lived. That was unnerving. And to have to do a full debate minutes later, um, once again, requires tucking that away, getting through what you need to do and then moving on. And every time we do that, we deny the public from knowing the things that we are experiencing. And it's, it seems so important because I think the rationale behind that was always to deny those doing the abuse um, any oxygen. But with social media, it, you, can't, you can't deny them the oxygen anymore. So the, the, the dynamic has changed. It feels like it's changed so much in the past few years when it comes to these sorts of incidents. Well, and they used to be somewhat random and they tended to be kind of isolated. They're not anymore. They're incredibly organized. These are, you know, folks on a mission to eliminate good people from doing work. And when I say eliminate, I don't know what that looks like for them, but I can tell you they're hoping we quit and we're not going to quit. The fear that I talked about, the fear that nobody wants to mention because, you know, it's perceived that fear equals weakness You have to understand that a person can feel fear and tuck it away and keep doing their job. We don't have to live in fear. Most of us are living with the fear. And that's important for people to know, like the way legislation is written and the way, you know, prosecution happens is by a victim having to demonstrate that they're fearful, they feel intimidated. Why not just write the legislation in a way that says you cannot act in this manner? So all of the onus right now is on the victim when it should be, in fact, on the perpetrators. You mentioned in that series of tweets as well that it felt like a lot of people were screaming into a void. What did you mean by that? I've read the posts from female journalists in our country who have been targeted in a very organized way. And I've listened to their conversations with the people to whom they were trying to report this. And we, as a society, we're not listening. We're not listening and we're not acting. So it's incredibly frustrating for those women to be strong enough and come forward and say, look, these things are happening to me and nothing changes. So, you know what? Strength in numbers, I guess, is is the approach I'm taking. The more of us that speak up about this and demand action, maybe something will change. I'm going to ask you, obviously, we'll talk about what those solutions might look like. But I think one of the things you pointed out, which I remember all too well from um, obviously covering uh, England at a time when uh, when the MP Joe Cox was killed. Um, I was back here at that point, but I'd covered England for a very long time, so paid a lot of attention. We know where this can go, right? We know where this can go. And I think that's what I'm seeing now is this fear that it's going to take something truly horrific before anyone stands up and says, okay, enough. That's what I'm worried about. And that's what I would like to avoid. And that's why I need people who have the ability to change the laws, to change the policies, to change the thresholds by which you can charge someone, to change the threshold by which you can actually prosecute someone. I need them to do their work. Asking me to come up with solutions is unfair. I've already got a job. 
I'm telling you that this is real. So I need them to step up and start taking some actions. Um, you know, I, I would have to say that Calgary Police Service has been incredibly good in explaining to myself, to members of the public, we're having a very difficult time laying charges in some cases because the threshold is too high. But if that's the case, the Crown needs to do something about that threshold. It, it seems very well organized. And that's the sense you're getting too. You talked about it earlier. It was random before. It doesn't feel random anymore. It used to feel like a random individual was coming up to you to say things, or do things to intimidate you. Now there's a pattern of behavior and it's the same person in many cases. So yes, I would definitely call this organized. And I would say, because it's organized, we need to look deeper into the roots of how this has taken hold, who these organizations are, who they're targeting and who they are actively recruiting. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that are speculating this is all because of COVID. You know, okay, I can understand that. But you have to understand that the recruitment process has become easier because so many people were in positions of isolation that made them feel quite desolate and quite desperate for some sense of community or belonging. And now these groups are actively preying on those folks as well. So, it, this is a very complex and deep-rooted problem that needs to be considered from a variety of perspectives. Yeah, I, because obviously there's a fine line between you know debate or saying what you think or calling out a politician, which is a time-honored tradition, and the sorts of abuse and intimidation that we've seen more of now. And where does that line get drawn? Absolutely. And you know what? It depends on the reaction of the individual. I have to commend the Deputy Prime Minister and her team in particular for just quietly getting on that elevator and removing themselves from the situation. I, I don't know what would have happened if she had engaged with this individual. And those are the kinds of things we need to consider. Human beings are who they are. You cannot expect everyone to react the same way. And you don't know how badly someone is going to keep provoking someone looking for a reaction. And that's when things start to escalate. That's what worries me. You're meeting with the Deputy Prime Minister later. What, uh, what do you hope to tell her? What do you hope to learn? Well, our city right now um, is experiencing a crisis, as are all cities across the country. We have increased rates of crime and social disorder. We have people in really desperate situations. Um, and I'm looking to the federal government to help come up with an urban strategy that really helps our cities come out of this. We need to link things like housing, uh, mental health issues and addiction together. And it's got to be all three orders of government working on this. So I'm going to use my very brief opportunity to meet with her to talk about what my city needs. I suspect that someone in her office, if not herself, will have seen uh, what you wrote. I imagine the incident on Friday might come up. It may come up. I did send her a note after that incident, just letting her know that, um, you know, I appreciate her strength. So maybe we'll have a conversation about it and maybe we will just talk shop. In the short term, and I know that solutions should be left to others because, you know, as you said, you have a job to do and, it, uh, and it's a busy one. Um, but in the short term, what are some of the things you would like to see done beyond? Because you, you wrote about this in your Twitter thread. You talked about the fact that it's all nice for everything to people to condemn something, for words of support to be thrown out there. But you said it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough now. now what could be done, do you think? I think... The Crown needs to look seriously at where their hands are tied. I think um, 
you know, municipalities and citizens need to rally together with their police services, demanding better thresholds that are actually achievable when people are seeing these sorts of things happen. I think we have to take the onus off the victim and we have to put it onto the perpetrator. I think actions are the things that need to be highlighted and not the, you know, feelings of the victim. That is a lot to ask of somebody that's already been through enough. In your experience, the people around, how much support have you gotten when these things happen? How many people there would stand up and say something and and act if someone was doing what we saw happen in Grand Prairie? Uh, It's hard to say. Again, human nature is unpredictable. I think people go into a bit of shock when they see something like this. Um, And sometimes they don't know what's happening. Like, my incident in 2017, people on my team thought this was somebody I knew until they saw the body language. And then they came in and intervened. And no one wants to make a scene. That's the other thing, right? So you quietly try to disengage from the situation. And that just emboldens the other person even more. So I would say there's a lot of really good people out there. But it takes them a second or two to figure out exactly what's happening. And then they've got to consider their own safety. So, you know, if you've got a mom with a couple of kids watching something like this, is she going to jump into the fray? Probably not. And I don't blame her. You know, so there's, there's all kinds of situations that could play out. And I think people are largely good people, but no one expects this to happen. And so your reaction is sometimes a little bit slow to come. I guess therein lies uh, the power of the intimidator, right? They are there in control of that situation because they're the ones who are acting out of character and everyone else is thrown off guard for just a little bit. And as you mentioned, that first reaction is just to put your head down and disengage, right? Well, and this is the person that organized this. This person knows exactly what they are going to do. This is someone that's probably spent you know, so much time obsessing about, wow, if I see that person, this is what I'm going to do. And if they have other people with them in some sort of an organized manner, then it becomes a situation of if you ever see this person, this is how you should manage it. And here's the worst part. Public officials sometimes feel an obligation to the public to release an itinerary showing where they're going to be. Like, you know that I'm going to be meeting with the deputy prime minister because her itinerary is released. Mm -hmm. So as public officials, we're in an incredibly delicate position. When we tell people where we're going to be, we put the public in jeopardy. I mean, what if that had been at an event? You know, like I'm very cautious about announcing where I'm going to be. I always talk about where I was because I worry about subjecting people to this type of a thing if someone is targeting me. You worry about the event organizers. You worry about the people who came to participate. You don't want to ruin everybody else's event by showing up and being a target. So it's tough to navigate. Dr. Gondek, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Um, Good luck with your meeting with the Deputy Prime Minister, and I look forward to catching up again. Thanks so much, Ben. Have a good day.